Welcome to season two of the Brand Safety Exchange podcast. I am your host Tiffany Xingyuang, the president and co-founder of Oasis Consortium, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing the cause of brand and user safety. Last season, we spoke with diverse stakeholders in brand and user safety. In this season, we are excited to take a much deeper dive into the community policies and governmental actions that shape the way we engage online. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Brand Safety Exchange. Today, I'm so excited to welcome our guest speaker, Alice Hansberger, the Senior Director of Customer Experience at Grinder. Welcome, Alice. Hi! Thank you so much for having me, Alice. Give us a brief introduction to Grinder, your your role at Grinder, and how you got into the world of trust and safety. So, senior director of customer experience could be any number of job titles at different companies. It's such a vague title. So. At Grinder specifically, I manage the umbrella organization for customer support, trust and safety policy for any kind of user-generated content, and also a sort of a general community insights team. And I had the same role at OkCupid for ten years, and just moved over to Grinder a little over a year ago. And I got into trust and safety by accident. Probably like most people, <laughs> I feel like now you know there's some people who are studying policy and ethical technology in college, but ten years ago that did not exist. I my first trust and safety experience was I started a message board in college, and so I had to moderate it and ban people, and it was the worst experience. I hated it. I promised I'd never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and became a film editor, editing documentaries, and then kind of fell into my role at OkCupid and realized that all of my skills from film editing and documentaries were actually really applicable to trust and safety and customer support because you're going through like hundreds, thousands, millions of bits of data and information, and you have to create patterns and. Stories、um, and narratives out of that, and that's what we do, you know, in support and trust and safety as well as film. So, strangely enough, used all the same skills that I had, and you know, as I sort of discovered that I could make a positive impact in people's lives through creating good trust and safety policy, the same way I was doing creating documentaries, I got hooked. So that's <laughs> my career in a nutshell. <laughs> Well, that's fascinating. To your point, trust and safety is an emerging discipline. Very rarely we have people、mm -hmm. who have been in the industry for over ten years, and for you, you have actually stayed on the course for the dating platforms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I kind of want to hear from you. What are the common disruptive behaviors that you have observed in the dating industry overall, and how how have they evolved over time? Yeah, so common disruptive behaviors for dating platforms are probably pretty similar to any kind of social media、um, platform. You have scammers and fake accounts, catfish, harassment, and bullying. <laughs> All of the sort of usual suspects when you know users are reaching out to each other or creating profiles, but. 
you know, the dating industry is so emotionally charged. People are really vulnerable when they're creating these dating profiles. They're lonely. They're looking for love. They're looking for connection. And, you know, that kind of puts everything on this heightened level more so than you might see on other kinds of platforms. So, you know, I, I think that makes the trust and safety work even more critical when when you're working for a dating app and you really have to take that emotional charge into account, you know, when, when you look at why people are being mean to each other or, you know, harassing each other or whatever else they're doing. How, how has safety evolved at a grinder specifically? So Grindr was purchased by uh, new owners in June 2020. They offered me a job in July and I started in August. So I overhauled everything. <laughs> I completely looked at everything from scratch. I rewrote the community guidelines. We published a bunch more help articles. We rewrote the safety tips. We published a scam awareness guide that I think we're the only dating app that has very specific information on the types of scammers that you see on dating platforms. We also, you know, looked at all of our policy internally, our procedures. We retrained the entire moderation team so we've done a lot in the last year and change and are gonna you know sort of continue so yeah the the trust and safety space at grinder looks very different now than it did you know 14 months ago i think grinder is lucky to have you you know hiring somebody with 10 years experience in the space recently you published a very interesting white paper uh, specifically on gender inclusive moderation and tell us about this topic, why it is important. Yeah, so this is like my pet uh, pet project. I think that makes it sound less important than it is. But, you know, the, the white paper sort of goes over ways that platforms that have user-generated content or users who are communicating with each other, how they can treat people fairly, equitably, inclusively, specifically trans and non-binary users or anybody who's sort of gender non-conforming. And I noticed, you know, when I started at OkCupid in 2010, one of my colleagues there was trans and, you know, we had conversations back then about how difficult it is, especially to make photo policies for trans and non-binary people. Cisgendered men can upload a picture uh, of themselves at the beach, not wearing a shirt. It's totally fine. It's not a big deal. But for trans men, trans women, non-binary people, often they get discriminated against. And whether a picture gets approved or not is arbitrary or discriminatory. And really the fair thing to do is to have the same rules for everybody, regardless of their gender. So we started that conversation, you know, 11 plus years ago, but society didn't seem ready for it. <laughs> we were like, we wish we could do this, but nobody outside of the sort of content moderation, trust and safety space is going to understand the nuances and, you know, the things that we're talking about. And, you know, now I work at Grindr and our whole community here is LGBTQ plus. Also a couple of years ago, my stepdaughter came out to me as trans. And so all of these things kind of combining together lit a fire under me. <laughs> when I started at Grindr, I was like, 
I want to share what I've learned. I want to make a difference on the internet. I want to help people make policies and content moderation procedures and understand how they can do it inclusively and fairly. And I don't want anybody to have to reinvent the wheel. When I've spent 10 years thinking about this stuff and my colleagues, Lily and Vanity, who wrote this with me, each also have almost the same uh, number of years and experience at OkCupid and eHarmony respectively. So between the three of us, we've spent 30 years almost, you know, in this space. So we really just want to, you know, get that information out there and help people and, you know, hopefully help people like my stepdaughter who get discriminated against every day in different ways. So, you know, hopefully we can make the internet a better place for people like her. Really thank you for for doing that for for the industry you know to your point this is a this is a quite cutting edge piece you know from the governance and policy perspective for moderation and we will put the uh, link to the white paper in our show at this point Alice share with us the key takeaways from the white paper as to the best practices to be gender inclusive when it comes to moderation there's tons of stuff that platforms can do and you know i think that the biggest thing that I want to, you know, highlight is that platforms really need to consider trans and non-binary people when they're creating policies and moderation workflows and that procedures or policies that work when you're just thinking about, you know, heteronormative cisgendered men and cisgendered women, especially on a dating platform, right? Like that's often the default, but what works for the default isn't going to work for other people. And, you know, now the younger generation is hugely more likely to identify as non-binary or transgender. Tons of people are, you know, expressing themselves in different ways. It's not always, you know, a linear path. And so moderation policies have to be flexible and they have to consider, you know, these people when creating any, any kind of moderation flow. So that's sort of the biggest thing is just like, consider these people <laughs> when you're doing your work, just think about it because so often they just get left behind. And then, you know, in an ideal world, platforms will create policies that are sort of inclusive of everybody and that don't require certain rules for men and certain rules for women, but, you know, are the same rule for everybody so that you don't take gender into account when deciding what content to allow or not allow. That's not possible <laughs> for many, many platforms, especially if you're on, uh, if you have an app that's distributed by Apple or Google on their app stores, we have to abide by their app store policies, which currently are not gender inclusive. So if you can't have rules that are the same for everyone, then be very explicit in your community guidelines about why cis men can show their nipples, but nobody else can. <laughs> be as inclusive as possible. Say trans men, that's fine too, you know, and really um, tell your users what what to expect. And then, you know, the last part is sort of recognize that your community members are going to be biased too. So trans and non-binary people are reported 
disproportionately highly by other users, especially, you know, I've seen on everybody who I've ever talked to who works in trust and safety at a, a dating platform says, you know, trans people are reported because users think they're not supposed to be on the platform. They say like, I don't want to be matched with a trans person. And so I'm going to report them because they're violating, you know, rules. And so, you know, if you're a platform that has automated decision-making based on reports, if a user gets reported five times, they automatically get banned because obviously they must be a terrible person. That doesn't work for trans people because they get reported simply for being themselves and not for breaking any rules. So you have to take all of that into consideration as well. Yeah, I still recall over a month ago when we first talked about back then your upcoming white paper on this topic. Mm-hmm. I, I know that you, you already started the journey of evangelism for this topic even way before you put down your thoughts on the paper. Mm-hmm. Here with the, with us the roadblocks that you have encountered. Yeah, so you know, Apple and Google have a really tough job. <laughs> I don't envy them having to create you know their own policies for user generated content that works for every single app on the app stores for every age range and every country. There's, you know, different global standards depending on where you are. Some countries and areas are already very relaxed. So in New York City, anybody can walk around with no shirt on. Man, woman, transgender, non-binary, doesn't matter. New York City has said we're not going to discriminate based on gender. But then obviously there's countries where, you know, women aren't allowed to even show their face and everything in between. You know, for Grindr, I can advocate pretty strongly for, you know, neutral photo rules because we're for adults. You have to be 18 to download our app. And you know, nobody on Grinder is going to be shocked by seeing a non-binary nipple. <laughs> like, it's, it's fine. But obviously not every platform on the app stores is going to have that same community base and that same sort of reaction. So, you know, I understand it's really difficult to, to think about this stuff in a way that could apply globally. I think that's, you know, the biggest roadblock. Um, But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be having these conversations and we shouldn't be trying to come up with solutions. And, you know, I I think that's the biggest roadblock is that a lot of companies aren't even talking about it, aren't even considering it and don't understand the impact that their decisions can make on communities that use them. And, you know, to that same extent, I've seen, you know, when I've talked to colleagues at other companies, um, not a grinder, <laughs> luckily, but other companies, there's there's this sense that if you just kind of say on your website that you're inclusive and that like, of course, trans and non-binary people are welcome and we value everybody, that that's enough and that it's, you know, too much work to really dig into the details and have separate workflows and super highly trained moderation teams just for a small subset of your community. And so I I sort of see this like performative allyship where companies say they value inclusion, but don't actually do the work to make sure that their 
fully inclusive and that they're actively combating the bias that their community members face. So, you know, I, I think that's the main, you know, the main problem is just trying to like get people to care <laughs> enough to really, really do the work and to think about these, you know, difficult issues. And, you know, hopefully we can, we can do that and help make a difference. I love it. Alice, I want to switch to bigger picture behind all what you're doing. At, at Oasis, we talk often about safety, privacy, and inclusion by design altogether. That's because I find they're inexorably linked. I am curious at a company like Grinder, how do you talk about safety from the lens of inclusion um, or and vice versa? Yeah, I mean, at Grinder, it's completely linked. Obviously, our whole community is LGBTQ plus and, you know, our users have to have really strict privacy controls because just being a member of this community in some countries is illegal and can put you in danger. And so linking a real world identity to, you know, an app like Grinder can, you know, make some people make assumptions about who you are and you know that can be really unsafe for for some people just given the political climate and so you know we have to allow our users to be you know like discreet or pseudon you know pseudonymous and you know for safety you have to balance safety and privacy that's always the really tricky thing about working in trust and safety and you know especially for Grinder, we have conversations all the time. You know, to some extent, for safety, you want every tiny scrap of information about somebody that you can ever get to prevent them from getting on the platform again, or you know, to hold them to you know really high standards if their real world identity is linked. But obviously, we can't do that here. So you know, it's it's always a balancing act. What we tend to do, Grinder, is you know, give users a ton of safety features and, and education so they can make informed decisions for themselves based on their own, you know, personal risk and what they want to do. Yeah, it's very true. We want to make safety universal for everyone from the user perspective. It actually makes it very hard from a company's perspective because the trust and safety risks uh, therefore vary by regions. So you mentioned briefly just now, what are the features and measures Grindr put, puts in place for the high-risk regions for LGBTQ plus groups for, for your user base? So we have um, a social justice nonprofit arm of Grindr called Grindr for Equality. And their whole mission is to have conversations around inclusion and to provide assistance and resources to Grindr and, you know, making these informed decisions and to advocate for our users. And so the director of Grindr for Equality keeps tabs on the global climate for the LGBTQ community. And 
coaches us on which areas need some extra support and some extra help. So Jack, who's the director of that, actually just put out a blog post about our five-point classification system for determining which regions of the world need extra safety features on Grindr. And, you know, we have a ton of stuff like disabling show distance features so that you can't pinpoint exactly where somebody is. We have a holistic security guide and like a gazillion languages, which goes over physical security as well as online security. I send daily push notifications to users in some regions, telling them about safety issues in their exact area, working with local nonprofits to get accurate information. And, you know, we also generally have a bunch of safety features so users can video or audio chat with each other before meeting to make sure somebody's genuine. Users can unsend messages. They can send pictures that expire after a certain amount of time. You can block screenshots in some areas. So, you know, we have a whole, a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, users can kind of choose how much they want to put themselves out there and how they want to vet somebody before they potentially meet. Very interesting, Alice. So th this this was a great milestone. You published this fascinating white paper on gender-inclusive moderation. What's the next big thing for you to push for the trust and safety space? So I'm not done with this topic yet. <laughs> you know, my goal is to free the nipple so that you know, anybody can post pictures and not have their gender taken into account when determining what content is acceptable or not acceptable. That's a big ask. So I think it's going to take a while, but the time for it is now socially and culturally, we're ready to have these conversations and, you know, trans and non-binary people deserve, you know, an equitable experience on the internet and, you know, we can help make that happen. Yeah. So the last question I have is that we see a surge in demand for trust and safety professionals across all platforms. So what would be your advice for professionals who want to enter in the space of trust and safety? There's a lot of opportunity out there and there's a lot of opportunities to to volunteer if you're not able to get a job without any experience it's like chicken and egg right like companies always want you to have experience but how do you get the experience if a company won't hire you without the experience i always really take an extra look at people who whose resumes include working at like a crisis hotline or helping to write codes of conduct or community guidelines for small online communities or our volunteer moderators on message boards or you know anything like that i think there's there's lots of options for people to try you know these types of roles in a small volunteer capacity and you know i think that's important too because trust and safety is hard it's emotionally draining it is really difficult to make judgment calls in, you know, these weird edge cases. <laughs> and so trying, trying it out a little bit before you start, I think can really help you kind of understand if it's something that, that you do want to do. And then, you know, I always wish that I had networked more earlier in my career. So I think don't be afraid to reach out to people and ask questions and say, hi, most people in trust and safety that I've talked to are 
incredibly generous with their time, really want to help each other out, really willing to talk with people and give advice and, you know, just sort of generally be a resource because ultimately we all, everybody in trust and safety wants the internet to be a safer, better place. And we're very, you know, happy <laughs> if somebody else is also interested in the same thing. So, so yeah, you know, try it out, reach out to people and thank you for trying to, to help, you know, help trust and safety. It's very much needed even more so today than, than ever. Thank you so much. This is a great note to to end on. And I really look forward to seeing the growing workforce of uh, the stewards for good across all platforms and companies. Thank you so much, Alice, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our episode. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And I encourage you to follow the rest of the episodes in this season, where we ask what companies and governments are doing and can do to make Web3 a safer and more inclusive place. If you want to join our movement, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and contact us through our website.